How's everybody doing tonight? Welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations brought to you by Supply the Why. Tonight, we have an outstanding show. We have two men that have been in this line of work, I think, for a combination of close to 60 years between the two of them. They are, uh, they've trained approximately 40,000 police officers, maybe more, in use of force, defensive tactics, and firearms training. So without further ado, let me bring in Major Dwayne Forts and retired Sergeant Steve Wolgemuth. These gentlemen, um, you're in for a treat tonight. Fellas, how you doing? What's going on, Dean? How you doing? I'm hey, doing, you doing very Dean? well. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm just going to have you both just kind of just talk about what you've been doing and, and, and where you're at now. So really quick. So Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and, and some of your career highlights? Uh, well, so I recently retired, uh, July 31st was my last day and I went into the automotive industry, uh, partnered up with a friend of mine, long life, uh, long term friend. Uh, we partnered up, opened up an auto body shop in Boston and, uh, kind of on a phase two of my life. Um, so I'm, I'm more busy now than I ever was. <laughs> Must be nice being your own boss though, huh? Yeah, it is. I, I yeah, I, I do answer to my partner, so I got to be careful about that. All right, all right. And you can do you have to shave every day, or can you just do your own thing now? No, I shaved today for this. Uh, <laughs> I go about a week or two at a, at a whack, so I it feel it's it feels itchy. It's been a long time since I've you know let it grow. Well, congratulations on your retirement, Steve. Dwayne, how Thank about you? you? Um, still still grinding on my 29th year. Uh, still teaching and. Uh, you know, educating those that want to be educated, helping those that want to be helped and uh, protecting those who need to be protected. That's it. Keep it All moving. right. So they're being really modest. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these gentlemen and how we met. So in 2015, um, that was roughly my 11th year in police work. I started in 2004. So, so I'm, I'm still an infant compared to what these two gentlemen have been through. And I had always wanted, I always had a passion for defensive tactics and use of force. And finally, I was able to get the blessing of a chief that that wanted that thought enough of me to send me through the class. And that's how I met uh, Steve and Dwayne here. They were the lead instructors for my defensive tactics certifications course. And I can tell you, they put us through the paces. It was the real deal. But if you're into that line of work and you and and you're and you're excited about uh, proper application of force and not just using the force, but the why behind the force. They did a wonderful job of supplying the why. So I thought it was only right with everything that's going on in the country right now to bring in two of the best in the, that I've I've ever come across. And, and these guys are known uh, throughout the region, throughout New England, and possibly even the country as some of the best defensive tactics and use of force instructors around. So that's why they're here. So guys, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the, for your imparting uh, your expertise on myself and, and my I think it was about 60 other classmates that were in that class. Um, I know that we're all better police officers for what you were able to do for us that night or during that, excuse me, that week, week and a half. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. All right. So now that I've got all the nice stuff out of the way, let's get down to it. Let's start with the video. I'm going to show you this. And then we're going to talk a little bit about this because again, use of force, it's a hot button topic right now. People are talking about police reform. There's talk of the funding. But let's find out what that would actually mean from a use of force uh, standpoint. So stand by. 
Put the knife down. Put the knife down. Put it down. I've got one at gunpoint central. Put the knife down. Put it down. He's not complying to command central. He's coming at us with a knife. Knife down. Knife down. Put the knife down, sir. Please put the knife down. Put it down, man. Please. We can help you. Please. Put it down. Put it down. No, no. 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 No, please don't. Do it. Please don't. Do it. No. Please don't. Central, we need units here, 1018. Put the knife down! We can help you put the knife down! So let's talk about that a little bit. So we saw a couple different components in that video there. First thing we saw, we saw a number of verbal commands. I tried to count. I lost track of how many times they either said, put the knife, the knife down, or they said, don't do it. It's got to be, what, what do you think, 40, 50 times? Yeah, between the two of them. Yeah. But between the two of them, 40, 50 times, right? So there yeah. was that aspect of it. Then they also tried to increase the distance between themselves and the suspect. All right. So they tried to increase the distance and they tried to buy more time, uh, calling for more units, everything that, that they're trained to do. Then it got to the point where now they're putting themselves in the highway. And it right. still didn't cause them to shoot. Like they didn't end up shooting this 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 suspect until he charged at him and then 
just kind of didn't give them any choice at that point. And the thing that I really want people to take home, especially if you're not a police officer or if you're not military, is that video is proof that just because you are shot doesn't mean you stop. That gentleman was shot several times and he kept going. Seven. So that'll add a little credence to when people say, well, how come you shot so-and-so so many times? Well, watch this video. So I'm going to stop talking right now and I'm going to turn it over to, I'm going to go to you first, Wayne. Tell us a little about, about this video and how this, and how this speaks to how and why we train the way we do. Well, you know, that took place in um, Athens, Clark County Police Department. And that was back in July 1st, uh, 2019. The gentleman, 23-year-old Aaron Hong, and um, you know, as, as police units arrived, uh, he, he met them, he confronted them. And he actually was in pursuit. And some would say, you know, it'd be a uh, suicide by cop, but you know, taking a page out of Steve's book, don't forget, you know, people who are suicidal are also homicidal. And, um, you know, taking into account what we're seeing on, the, on, on video, you have to, you know, people that watch this in, in Monday Night Quarterback for, for training purposes, that, you know, any upload of a video, especially off of YouTube, the videos are 99% of all videos that we view, they're corrupted and they're not in its truest form. So uh, the takeaways from that is, yeah, they utilize time, distance, and, you know, for a layman's term, had to draw a line in the sand because of getting out into the, the as you said, the, the, the highway, because that's what it was, a highway. So you mentioned the term corrupted. Can you just put a little meat on those bones for people that might not be familiar with that term? What exactly does that mean? So videos being corrupted in a sense of like we all have our cell phones and cell phones record, uh, you know, dig digital cell phones. These phones, why they can record so much is because, you know, frame rates per second, 32 frame rates per second. That means within a one second time, there are 32 individual frames. The best way I can explain that is if I were to take a book with 32 pages and I drew stick figures in the corner and then I fanned the paper and the stick figures would come to life. And then right in front of your face, I tear out, not saying the pages are numbered, I tear out two or three of those stick figures and I fan it again. It is impossible for the human eye to detect where the interruption was but the stick figure will then either speed up slow down depending on where it was in the sense of motion so with that being said when you take it's, it's the sole proprietor the sole proprietor what i mean by that it's the data in which the information was created so think about this context if you know i'm, I'm cape verdean but i don't speak creole so if I were to go to the Cape Verde Islands right now, I couldn't fluently speak to the population who lives there. However, I know just enough to get around. Now I take my good friend, Steve, who doesn't speak any Creole, and he's just gonna be bobbing his head. In other words, so when we right click, Steve says, I can't open it up. I'm over here saying, hey, I can open up that media source. I know enough to get around, but I ain't gonna give you its full, you know, uh, 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 fulfillment of that video. So my point is, is when we upload from a second from us from another source, we lose frame rates per second. So time and distance is, as I said, corrupted. You're not seeing it as those officers seen or saw it. Now they had the Axon Flex cameras. You know, now we're talking about 
the, 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 the line of sight that they had. As I turn, it's a fisheye lens. So now what happens in a fisheye lens is things are elongated. So what we're looking at, like, wow, that he, you know, looked like he was eight feet, of, you know, 10, 12, 15 feet. When in reality, he could have been six to seven feet. And the only way that they do that is they, you know, take a known point on the ground, they mock it, measure it out and so forth. So the, the, looking at the video in, its, in itself, the video only shows what it records. And then when you understand how video works, then you have to take that into account as well. Now we're talking and I'll get off my soapbox. And that was, that, was, right. that was broad daylight. What happens when it's at night? What about ambient? You know, mm -hmm. what, color, what color is this, this hoodie in infrared? Yeah, that's a lot of different factors, Dwayne. So, Steve, I'm going to have you jump in on this. So what are your what's your take on what Dwayne said and, and how does that fit into to, uh, to the use of force crisis, I don't, for lack of a better way to put it, that we're having in this country right now? Yeah, so since the first time I started, you know, teaching at all, I always wanted to understand, it's funny, uh, I always wanted to understand why police officers did what they did and could we do something to make it better? When, you know, Dwayne went to Force Science and got certified and he started coming back with all of this information that talked about physiological response and all that, things really started to make sense and why officers made decisions. Looking at this, this video in particular, uh, you know, the officers, I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback it. I wasn't there. I don't know all the facts and circumstances. I've never sure. read watch. I've watched the video several times, um, so I'll just talk about the things we can see. You know, they 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 take the terrain that they have and utilize as much of that distance to buy themselves time. Time gives them opportunity to make better decisions. Like you said, they called for backup. They tried to separate to give better, they tried to utilize good tactics and distance. Uh, they tried to communicate uh, to the best of their ability of what they wanted the subject to do. Uh, he chose to make a decision and kind of force their hand from what I can see in that particular situation. It, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things. They call for backup, but how long is that going to take? You can call a crisis negotiator. How long is that going to take? This, this individual, Mr. Hong, had already made his decision uh, on what he was going to do. And, and to kind of echo what Dwayne had mentioned earlier, you know, um, not my words, I, I, everything I say you know, in regards to, you know, teaching or police use of force is I've kind of stolen from other great trainers or police officers or things I've read or heard. You know, uh, someone that's suicidal is homicidal. He's willing to take a life. If he's willing to take his own life, he's willing to take someone else's with him. Uh, he made his decision. The police officers had no choice in that circumstance. There was not many more things they could have done uh, from what I can see. Uh, I, I like that. Yeah, I like that rushed, a lot. Yeah, they had to make a decision. Did you notice that the knife, after he was shot, well, seven shots rung out. I don't know how many times he was hit when he went down. When he got up, did you notice the knife was on the ground? The officers did a great job transitioning to taser. Um, or the officer that we were looking through the body camera or the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the eyeglass camera from Axon there, uh, you can see the knife on the ground. He transitions to taser as the subject was, uh, and ideally because they had distance and time, they were able to make good decisions. As the subject's rushing at the second officer we see in the footage, 
that officer's holstering because he recognizes, because he had time, which is rare in these types of situations. He has time to see the knife is on the ground. My life is in, in imminent danger. I got to transition to something else. In my opinion, that's what they were thinking. And, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, it escalated from there, um, you know, and then the kind of the, the video ends. But um, to echo what Dwayne said, you know, they did a lot. They did a lot of things right. Things happen. Um, physiologically, they, you know, they're going through a lot of stress. Um, it's hard to make decisions. They did a lot of good things to give them time to, you know, to try to assess and evaluate. So let me jump in real quick. So a couple things. First of all, I love that saying. So let me make sure I got that right because I'm going to steal it from you and I'm going to use it. So a person that is suicidal is homicidal. Do I have it right? Potentially homicidal, right? They're willing to take a life, right? We already know and, that. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, that's profound. I don't think a lot of people, even cops, realize that, that if someone has their mind made up to take their own life, the likelihood that they'd be willing to take yours, I would say just law of averages goes through the roof, right? Right. Absolutely. What do they have to lose at that point? They have no intention of being taken into custody because they've already decided to take their own life. So that, right. that and you hear, the, you hear the term suicide by cop, right? We, mm -hmm. We've all heard that. A lot of people don't know really what that means, but ultimately the subject forces the hand of the officer you know, in some a homicidal act, meaning going at them with a weapon or simulate drawing a weapon to create a situation that the police officer has no choice but to respond. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it, you know, they, they force the officers to take their life because, you know, one thing, one way, one reason or another, they're unable to do it themselves, you know, yeah, uh, it, but they, but so so, so that's that's an excellent point that um, that that's becoming a, a a bigger and bigger thing with the mental health, which we'll get into deep later in the show about how so many more calls have a mental health component to them. That um that these calls are really becoming complex. It's not the Bing Bang thing that you see on TV where you're watching a cop show on TV and they are uh, finding out about a crime, they're investigating a crime, and they're solving a crime within sixty minute time frame, including commercials. It's not that way in the real world. Right. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's a little no. more complicated. So if you're just joining in again, you know, this is supply of the wide difficult conversations. And I'm here with retired Sergeant Steve, Steve Waldremuth and major Dwayne Forts. They are uh, defensive tactics icons in Massachusetts. So I'm going to hit the chat right here. So we have a question from Mike and Mike says a man with a knife the other day in Boston, the officer shot the man with a shotgun beanbag. The suspect was taken into custody so the question is, is the shotgun beanbag a good tool to use? Is it better than a taser? And do we have these in Stoughton? All right. So, again, you did that thing I like, like in high school. Like you say it's one question, but it's part A through J. All right. So we're going we're gonna to start. We're going to take little bites of this question for Mike. So uh, I'm going to go to Dwayne first. So how do you feel about the beanbag shotguns? So the beanbag shotguns, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a tool of opportunity, you know, um, giving time, distance, and with that, hopefully, you know, uh, the the common practice is, is they have lethal cover along with non-lethal cover, and on an average, it takes anywhere from two to three bean uh, uh, beanbag rounds 
to actually be successful. So it's, 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 uh, is it a good idea? Yeah, I think it's a good idea given the circumstances, but you know, how many departments are out there that actually have that, you know, capability. All right, Steve, is it better than a taser? Is it a better option than a taser, Steve? All right. Well, that's a loaded question. Yes, it is. Uh, it's difficult conversations. You're going to get loaded questions. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, let's talk about opportunity. You know, right. uh, a less lethal shotgun with, loaded with a beanbag round. Uh, the, there's limited supplies out there of people that carry them. Uh, you don't get out of your car typically with that unless what's the what's the nature of the call? You know, in Boston, I know nothing about that situation. I'm speculating 100% that they knew they had some indicator that this person was at a standoff position with the police. And typically, what do we see? That's when someone trained in the use of less lethal or a SWAT team member who has it on board uh, is able to bring that to the situation and it becomes an option. It gives more distance. It has greater range. It, it's nothing more than an impact tool. That's it. It's like reaching out with a long baton and hitting someone. Um, it's, you know, it's designed is to hit in the similar areas, areas as a baton, police baton. And what and are those areas, Steve? Just for people that don't know, just give an idea of what those areas might be. Uh, with, with the beanbag round, it's going to primarily be uh, the hips on down and the, the arms. That's it. Um, you know, with a baton, it would be other areas that are not going to create significant injury, um, you know, like uh, the head, neck, spine, solar plexus, stuff like that. With a beanbag round, because it comes out with a little more velocity, those risky areas to hit someone with a beanbag round intentionally are kind of shortened, you know, m- meaning more like the extremities uh, where they would want to shoot it. And again, because you get time and distance, a taser is on a police officer's hip. Uh, Taser has its faults. You have to be within a range of 21 to 25 feet. The, you got to make sure these two little probes actually hit the person. Uh, they stick, they go through the clothing, and they they actually make contact. Otherwise, you have a clothing disconnect, and the taser will fail. And the taser fails in police uh, reports across the country Taser fails approximately 50% of the time it's utilized. And it's not the device, it's it misses. Uh, a probe falls out, the person falls down, and the probe comes out. Uh, the wind. All does, time, the, does time of year play a role in that? Like, for example, like now that it's getting colder and people have more layers of clothes, is that a problem? Absolutely, absolutely. The the probes that come out, you know, the the barb that's on the end of the probe, think of like a number one foot fish hook, uh, needs to penetrate that clothing and get close, if not into the skin. Uh, it makes a small puncture in the skin, ideally. Uh, if there's any clothing, a Carhartt jacket or, or multiple layers, a hoodie and a shirt, uh, or it's puffy. A lot of people wear loose clothing. The loose clothing itself creates, inhibits the taser working. So what I mean by a loaded question is, it depends. You give me a certain circumstance, I'll tell you, hey, this is where this tool would work. And in another situation, you change it, just direct, change the facts and circumstances. I'm going to change the tool uh, that may work in that situation. You know. Uh, all right. Fair enough. So as, as we go on from there, so 
So it seems like we got a little more about the Boston citizens. They called for a gun car and patrol officers did not have one on scene. So there you go. That speaks to your point, Steve, about this is not something a, a, a beanbag um, shotgun, Mike, is not something that's typically ready, readily available in a patrol car. That's for a specialized no. circumstance. And Steve also mentioned something earlier that I want to put a little uh, context to. So when we talk about the nature of the call and what that means is that means the call for service, like what we were originally called there for. And those of us that have been on the street for quite some time, we will all tell you that a lot of times what we get called there for is not end up does not end up always being what the circumstance is when we get there. Sometimes there is, you know, I know it's going to shock you, but sometimes the people that call the police aren't truthful with us. I know. I know it's crazy, but sometimes people they they kind of filter and they just kind of try to guide our response by being by prejudicing what they tell us. All right, so that happens a lot. Sometimes you have dispatchers that filter the calls. Like they're hearing a call and and they start filtering what they think is important and what isn't. So you end up missing valuable pieces or pieces get added to what's actually happening. So right. you can't always go by what the original call was for. And the third thing that happens is you have people that say, well, somebody is assaultive towards me, but they have no idea what assaultive means. You get there and they're like, what do you mean they were assaultive? Well, he called me a jerk and I feel assaulted. Well, you know what? That's not really assaultive. Read a book. You know what I mean? So it's 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 one of those things. So right. there's all different um, things that can that can attribute to the nature of the call. All right. So now I've belabored that. We got another question or a comment. I would think that if an actual shot from a gun didn't stop him, then a beanbag round would have had even less of an impact. I think that's pretty that's that's fair to say. You know, it's 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 one of those things. Um, again, like I said earlier, like just because someone gets shot doesn't mean they stop. Just like when some people see a police officer in uniform, doesn't mean they stop. So um, fair point there. All right. So we've gone about into that a little bit. Defunding. So I know, I know, but you knew we had to go here eventually. So Dwayne, talk briefly about defunding, what that means to you, and talk about the impact that would have on the training environment in policing. And then, well, after a couple minutes, we'll bounce over to Steve. Same question. Go ahead. The screen's yours, fellas. Refer to like the funding, what's, what's taking place now. I mean, you look at, you know, across the board that, you know, training takes a hit, the, the, the resources. Uh, and, and when they say defunding, taking, you know, money and propriety is a way to go and, you know, distribute that to where, because that that's still unclear. And obviously, you know, the mental health industry is a, uh, is a big component of that. So, you know, as far as like defunding the police, I, I believe more attention should be about continue to fund the police and co-work with the mental health industry. There are a lot of people right now, as, as we speak, that, that should be, you know, getting the professional help to deal with whatever their situations are. And, um, but they're not, they're not getting, you know, the proper care, if you will. So where are they? They're, they're walking amongst the general public. And next thing you know, someone calls 911 and then you have a police officer or police officers dealing with an individual who's in crisis, yet no crime has been committed, but they're there to what? Protect and serve the public. From what? From harm. 
And now you have a situation where you have somebody who's disconnected and I'm giving, or you're giving verbal commands, stop right there, get down on the ground. And they are disconnected from society. They don't respond to commands, but yet they present a threat to the officers and or the public. If the officer delays and doesn't do something, then they're gonna be scrutinized for not responding quick enough. If they respond, then they are going to be scrutinized for not delaying. So it's, it's a fine line. It's a so fine it, line. So it's a classic damned if you do, damned if you don't. Steve, how do you feel about damned if you do, damned if you don't? I think you're damned if you do. I don't think uh, you'd be damned if you, did, if you don't. Um, if you, number one, I don't know what defund the police means. I don't think anyone, people say it, but they don't define it. Uh, then people that know nothing about what you know police officers do on a day-to-day -day basis, how they train, how they work, what equipment they need to perform their jobs. They, they, they have the expectation up here, but uh, the willingness to provide funding to get prepared for this is down here. Uh, you know, classic example, I'm gonna put it in the perspective of my auto body shop. Uh, so do. I'm, out, I'm out in the shop and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sanding a car or doing something. Um, you know, the guy that orders supplies comes over and he doesn't order the supplies he wants. He comes over and says, hey, how is that sandpaper that I got working for you? Do you need another type? Do you, would, another, would something make you more efficient or make you more effective? And it's the same goes with policing. Um, you know what, if we defund the police, I would ask one question we, we know happens. What is affected by in policing when you start taking away money? The first thing is training. Number one, I will say this and every police officer, a lot of police officers don't like going to training. They wanna to go to work, they wanna do their job. And I agree, and that's great. But training makes for better police officers, better prepared police officers, brings them up to date on the latest and greatest information and tactics out there. And, the, and they don't get the time to go home and train. They need, they need that training on the job and you know, uh, to get them prepared to deal with, let's say critical incidents or mental health issues. And the first thing to ever be impacted when funding goes is police training. We see it all the time. We do, you, you know, hey, we need a full day to do training. Ah, we'll give you four hours. And that's been happening for years, especially in Massachusetts. And when you cut training, how can you expect a police officer to be the best at their game if you don't provide them the best equipment, the best information? And I, I don't know what people mean by defund the police. You, we can't get rid of policing as a whole. I think if, I hear the rumors that a few cities have tried that, you know, limiting police response to certain calls. And there's been an outcry by the communities, hey, we need you back here we, we, because things just go awry. You know, so I, I don't know what that means. I, I think you're damned if you do. Um, I think where we need to focus is we need, I hate saying it, but where are we going to get the money? But we need to fund more police training. If you want better police officers, you need to fund more police training. I was on the phone the other day um, insuring my antique motor vehicle with Haggerty Insurance. And I, as I'm sitting there listening to the elevator music, from Haggerty Insurance, they get on and say, our appraisers go to 40 hours of in-service training every year to better appraise your antique motor, motor vehicle. 
And I thought to myself, what changes year to year with antique motor vehicles that my appraiser needs to go to 40 hours of in-service training to do one thing, appraise antique cars that just got one year older? 40 hours. 40 hours to, to at Haggerty Insurance to insure antique automobiles every year. You know, I don't know. So I got to ask this, and this is the question I ask because um, clearly, in, in my capacity here, in my in my day job, for those who don't that don't know me, I am an administrative sergeant during my day job, so I'm not on the out on the street like I once was. But the question that I that I get asked is obviously about the fund, and I do something that personally I hate. I tend to answer that question with a question, all right? And I know it's annoying. And my question mm -hmm. to those to fund people is. Okay, so suppose I'm on board with this defunding. You tell me what services you no longer want us to offer you. You tell me. Do you no longer want us to come to your paper exchanges on your car accidents? How about no more illegal dumping calls because somebody's dumping grass clippings at the end of your street? Can we not come to those anymore? Oh, I got a good one. Your neighbor's having a cookout, and one of their guests parked their car six inches into your driveway space but you don't really like that person and you don't really feel comfortable going to knock them on their door and you call the cops and now we come do it. Or you lost your iPod or you, or it's stolen. You don't know which. Can we stop coming to those calls? So you tell us what calls you don't want us to respond to anymore before we can even begin to have this conversation about the funding. So have you got gentlemen, any, any thoughts on, on that? It's, what I used to and, and still do, you know, when they're talking about this defunding of, of, of police, and we all know the the pivotal turning point in which brought this this topic up. But I and I and I said this to a bunch of people. I challenge anybody prior to what just took place with 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 an incident where we are where we are today, Massachusetts. When is the last time, other than the, the recent riots, have you turned on the television and saw people requesting the badge and the job of officers involved in a shooting? Because officers have been involved in shooting in Massachusetts. And where I'm going with this is the training in Massachusetts pretty much has been impeccable as far as law enforcement being in the the, the international arena where you're hearing about incidences where, you know, people are, are requesting officers' jobs. When, when have you? I, I haven't. I haven't. The, the, the closest thing to, like, international news was the Bear Summit, was the Bear Summit with the Cambridge office, and that wasn't about a shooting. That was just about profiling. No, you go back to that. Snell Grove, Red Sox, right? The, the, there was no protest. We, hey, we want the officer's job. It's an unfortunate set of circumstances. But prior to that, so what does that say about the training in Massachusetts? But yet we're going to defund the police and change. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Evolve it. Evolve it. But why are you going to extract from it? It's just, it's baffling to me. Well, speaking of baffling, I got another clip for you. So tonight we're doing, usually we do one a show. But there's so many of these that I, I feel the need to do a second one. So, again, if you're just tuning in, 
This is Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I'm here with uh, Steve, retired Sergeant Steve Waldemuth and Major Dwayne Forts. So, and we're just talking about some of the issues with def uh, defensive tactics, use of force, and we're just trying to educate people on the different aspects that are behind the curtain that not everybody sees. So with that said, I'm going to go into this next video just to warn you a little bit. Um, I should have said it before the last one. These are a bit graphic. So if you have a weak constitution, you might want to look away. And secondly, if there's going to be a little bit of dead air at the beginning of this, don't worry about it. It's just the way the video is. The sound will come on. So here we go. What the f It's can open one fifty seven. I just been f***ing stabbed. Drop the knife. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. All right. Um, tough to watch. Definitely yeah. tough to watch. So I'll go to you first, Steve. Uh, to, to the people yeah. that think that we should be shooting people in an arm or a leg, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, prior to this, uh, uh, us chit-chatting, I happen to look up, you know, that statistic. And you see anywhere from, you know, police officers shooting in, in critical incidents when police officers are involved in a shooting and have to discharge a firearm, uh, they're hitting their target 35% or less. It depends which, you know, whether you, you know, look at the study in Dallas or Atlanta, um, you know, anywhere from 35% or less uh, times the police officer is actually hitting their target. And you're talking and about can, center mass, right? You're talking about center mass too, right? Not even aiming for a limb. Oh, I'm talking about hitting the person at all. So in that situation, in that video right there is a perfect example to kind of support what I'm saying or support the statistic. We go the range and each, each police officer, it's a pretty much a standard across the country that police officers must score 80% or better on the range. So 80% of their targets must go, uh, their rounds must go in a scoring area. That's primarily standing stagnant, maybe moving a little bit here and there, not trying to save your life, running backwards, shooting with one hand, which is pretty much what occurred with that female police officer when the subject was coming at her with the knife. She shot at the subject as she was backing up and moving over rough terrain, the curbing, the grass, and she missed both those rounds. She didn't hit the, uh, the female at all. Um, you know, this goes to show that if we now say we want to hit a smaller, faster moving target, 
where is that percentage going to go? Where are those going to rounds going to go? And again, I always say this to, you know, the new police officers, they get in and they say, you know, someone says, hey, what about shoot to kill? And we always say shoot to stop. Everything from our firearm, baton, taser, less lethal impact munitions like a beanbag, pepper spray, empty hand techniques, every technique that a police officer done has one goal, and that is to stop the attack or stop the behavior. The firearm, its only intent is to stop the violent act or the violent behavior that's going to risk someone's life being in imminent jeopardy that or risk of serious bodily harm. That's it. The police officers don't shoot to kill. Police officers shoot to stop that immediate violent act. It's a little more powerful. It, it gives a little quicker response uh, to stopping that violence. Um, that's if they hit the person. Uh, so to ask a police officer in an extremely violent situation, while in fear for their life or the life of someone else, to try to strike in the weapon hand or the leg is an impossible task. I mean, unless you're, you know, a recon Marine, you're probably not going to be able to accomplish that. I just, it's impossible. And I get it. I wish it was, I wish it was true. I wish we could do it. It's another, it's, it's another thought happen. process that's been influenced by TV. No doubt. No, Wayne, no you want in on this? Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. I just, I just take, take somebody at home right now that when I say at home, anybody at home, Roll up a paper, roll, roll up a piece of paper. Roll up a piece of paper. Make a little paper ball right here. Have somebody stand off to the side and just wave in hand, just like this. And then with that paper from three feet away, toss it and try to hit a moving hand. Same distance, I just stop moving side to side and toss the paper at my chest, as you said, center mass. The likelihood of hitting a larger target, and th and that's during that that ain't even a lot of stress when you add stress to that, and that's why the percentages are what they are with with the, with the firearms. That's just that's untrained behaviors. That that's somebody or individuals that watch the Hollywood factor. Yeah, you said TV, television. I say tell live vision. All they do is tell stories <laughs> to entertain the masses. It's and it, it is. It's the Hollywood factor, and, and we, we you joked on it earlier. You know they expect it to be. Why'd you Why'd you punch so many times? Why did Why did you, professional fighters, professional fighters, they're not there to end somebody's career. It's a sport. They're there for what endorsements. They're there to win. You see boxers, mixed martial artists when they're throwing the punches and we're sitting back watching this television set and it's like, oh man, he is clearly, she is clearly dazed. They're out. But yet two or three, four more punches and the ref has to what? Intervene. They're not there in, in, the, in the kill moment, like I want to take this individual's life, but they are still what? Their brain is still working in the arena of that fight or flight and they're in the fight. No different when, I get that quite, why do they shoot so many times? Because in their mind, the fight was still going. And a great case that we talked about in the past is Amadou Diallo. How do you how do you how do you explain, you know, forty two rounds being fired from four different officers and twenty six rounds striking an unarmed individual, and three of those rounds end up in the bottom of their feet? How does that happen? 
Why did they shoot so many times? I got a minute. Yeah, one thing I'd like to say is uh, kind of bringing it all around, everything we've kind of talked about. If you look at that, you know, that incident where Officer Metzlin goes to that door on a call of a dispute about medication with her roommate or something mm -hmm. or a house. And you're referring and to the call we just saw, that video we just saw, yes? Okay, saw right the now. woman come out stabbing, just so people can follow what you, where you're going with this. Correct. So we're going to we're going to separate the two uh, incidents. So the first call we watched in Georgia, where the police officers uh, went to a knife call and were approached and greeted by a subject that was clearly holding a knife. They had time and distance to set up tactics to try to mitigate the problem the best they could with the resources they had in hand. Officer Metzling shows up to a call you talked about like Calls are never what they seem. We think we're going to a car accident when, in fact, it's a drunk driver. We think we're going to a car accident. Next thing, it was, you know, someone's asleep in the breakdown lane. It the Calls are never what they seem. And she goes there thinking she's going to help to solve a dispute about medication when the time and distance, she had none. It was taken away from her. She was not afforded any time to make a decision. Uh you know, uh, Miss Baker comes out of the house wielding the knife and attacking, hitting her. She cut her with the knife, uh, Officer Metzling, and that's when she backs up. You, look how long it took her to process, hey, I'm no longer at a medication dispute call. I'm now at a knife call. Oh, wait, I was stabbed. Oh, wait, I got to get to my gun. And we watch it here in the comfort of this room, and it happens so quick. Could you imagine how Officer Metzling was feeling and how your mind cannot operate and switch gears that quick? It just, physiologically, we don't have it in us. Um, she did a great job. She backed up. She realized, oh boy, I'm in a knife fight right now. She got her gun out. She gave, you know, stayed in the fight, gave good commands, called for backup. And then unfortunately, you know, the situation uh, turned out into a, you know, a fatality because she had the woman at Miss Baker attacks again. But my point is both knife calls, two totally different situations. Um, but, but I think a lot of times the community or the media don't depict the difference. They say, so, Hey, another cop shoots another person, you know? So they lump everything together. So, I'm, and, and, and that's both of you guys beautifully said. Um, and, I guess the way I try to dumb it down for people, for lack of a better way to put it, is all use of force incidents are essentially like snowflakes. There's no two that are alike. Every single use of force incident, even if it involves the same person with the same weapon at the same location, if it happens two different occasions, there is some difference somewhere, whether it's their motivation, whether it is their, their victim, whether it is the time of day, the weather. There's always something a little different about each one of these calls, which it makes it impossible to lump them all together. There's no way you can view them all as one extension of another. So it's important that people realize that, like Steve said, Dwayne, I'm going to get to you one quick second and then I'm going to hit, then I'm going to hit the chat, but it's important that you guys understand that they're all, um, they're all inter, they're not, they're not interconnected. So go ahead, Dwayne. I can see you want to get in. No, with that video, what at the, there's more to that video. So at the end, that was Sergeant C.J. Nobles who fired, you know, and, and 
ultimately stopped the advancement of, of her attack. And she laid idle. My point being, she was shot four times. The first video was shot. The gentleman was shot seven times and got back up. This lady, Ms. Baker, was shot four times. And when K-9 arrived on scene, they sent the dog because she was still trying to reach for the knife. So the K-9 took a bite of her arm, took, took, took hold of her arm, and she's beating on the dog while shot four times. So, so, once, so once again, you're hammering home the point that just because someone's shot doesn't mean that's the end of the encounter. And in some, in some cases, it might make it worse. The person realizes they're hurt. It's like, you know, trapping a wounded animal. You get a wounded animal, that's when they're most dangerous. So that's a good point. So gentlemen, um, we're already at about 50 minutes here. I know it's flown by. So we got about 10 minutes left. So we're going to hit the chat. So here's a question that I thought that both of you could sink your teeth into. So what's more important in policing today, being mentally sharp or physically sharp? Now, I know both of you guys are, um, you're both you're both big into working out. I know both of you are into martial arts. So you tell me and and Mike wants to know, what do you think is more important if you had to do like a 51% versus 49% type deal? Dwayne, you go first. Yeah, I, I, would, I would lean more towards, you know, you asked me 10, 15 years ago, I said the physical. But I was full of testosterone and you know, ready to go and hey, you know, but you know, the older you get and then if, if the, the mental capacity, when I say the mental capacity is to uh, be able to, uh, I want to use the word negotiate, if you will, to get voluntary compliance, it, it works. Uh, does the physical, they kind of, that's kind of, they go hand in hand, you know, mental and, and, and physical being, uh, but for the, for the most part, where are you? When I say, where are you? What, what, what is the geographical layout? You know, um, what type of, you know, uh, individuals that did you come across? Uh, you, you, 99, 98, up until this recent, we used to say, you know, 96, 98% of the population does what the officers ask. You put the lights on, they pull over, right? But now you get people that are, that, that you know, 2% of that, they want to argue and debate. But there's a very small percentage that actually physically will confront the officer. And, and, and turn it into, you know, a, a, a attack. And when you go to make the arrest, for the better part, people are trying to do what? Get away. It's that one or 2% that actually wants to physically stay there and have other ulterior motives. All right, Steve, same question. Can, uh, can you give us a quick answer, 90 seconds or so, about uh, what you think is more important, mentally sharp or physically sharp? I think uh, I'm not going to pick one. I, you know, thinking about it as Dwayne was talking and you were talking, I, I really believe uh, I, I would add a third. Uh, I think you need to be emotionally shot too. Um, I, I like think, it. You know, empathy and emotion needs to come into play with situations, especially we're talking mental illness. And let's face it, someone that's suicidal, there's a, if you have time and there's a, you know, and you realize there's some, some, something going on uh, with their mental capacity some emotion and, and compassion could be important. I think you need to be physically sharp, uh, prepared, physically you know strong, tactics-wise trained. I think you need to be mentally prepared to deal with stressful situations. Also, know the knowledge of policing, what needs to go. There's a lot of things, emotion, empathy, uh, compassion. I think all of those things are super important. I think you have to be, I think you know 100% of all of them. All right. So. I'm going to jump in on this. In a perfect world, 
Yes, I'm with you, Steve. You know, being being 100% of all of them, but we don't live in a perfect world, all right? Especially those of us with families, kids, things like that. So if I have to choose one, again, we're talking like, you know, like, like that game we were kids, like, hey, if I put a gun to your head, what would you choose? I would choose mentally sharp. Because if you're not mentally sharp, none of that other stuff matters. And I can show you videos again, and uh, I, I promise you, in future shows, I will show you videos of cops that look like they just jumped out of a out of a uh, CrossFit video, but they're not mentally sharp, and they have no idea how to use all those muscles they built in doing their kipping pull-ups. None, <laughs> and it puts them in a tough spot. Whereas you'll see other videos where you have guys that might not be in the best of shape, but they are mentally sharp. They have put themselves in a position where they're guys that used to train. Maybe they're guys that have out of box wrestled and they have been beyond. They've mentally been beyond. They've been in a situation where it, where their will to win has come out and now they know how to access that will to win that you can only get with a trial through fire. As Dwayne will tell you from his jujitsu training, Steve, I know you train martial arts. Like there's a point when you're training where you want to quit. But the more you train, you know how to negotiate through that those those times where you want to quit and your body's telling you to stop but your mind knows that you have more left you can only get that through training and that's why i'm going to give the edge to being mentally sharp because again you can't get there no matter how fit you are if your mind hasn't already been there first so that's my opinion on that so a couple more things in the chat here guys um so karen says so mike paul says there's nothing like a d-block workout all right. I am not sure what that means, but I'm pretty sure that's for you, Major. Um, Karen says you got to be physically sharp to get there daily, but mentally to deal with the current climate. Hundred percent with what's going on now. Well said. All right. So Bruce says, "Nice job, guys. Always good to see you and hear your words." Amen to that. I'm very lucky that I was able to uh, not just talk to them on the show here. I I had about a 45 minutes with these gentlemen behind, behind on, in the backstage. And I've been talking to Dwayne quite a bit in the, in the, uh, the last couple of days. So uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. All right. Here's uh, an old friend of mine, a guy that I consider a, a mentor of mine, um, Bobby. He says, <laughs> I, I know, you know, him, Steve, you know, AKA judo. The question that the question adds another question. If the officer is neither mentally or physically sharp, do you take them offline and force another officer to work? All right, you guys are both bosses. Here's your tough boss question. So, Boss Wolgemuth, oh, what boy. do you think? <laughs> uh, do you take them offline and force another officer to work? It's a tough balance. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure if Judo's talking about, like, you know, this person's off their game for a specific shift. If that's what we're talking about, uh, I look at it as if you, you know, as a supervisor, you should recognize that and see what you can do to uh, bring that person back online and get them back in the game, you know, mentally, physically. Like you said, Dean, maybe something's going on at home, you know, uh, yep. you know what's going on. So I think you need to always pay attention as a supervisor and what's going on. Someone that has that continuous problem, uh, you know, that they pose a risk to themselves and risk to other officers. I think that's when, you know, uh, partners, other officers, supervisors need to step in and, and real, you know, let help them recognize that 
number one, it's unhealthy. And number two, um, whether it be mental or physical, you know, uh, you know, issues, it's unhealthy and it's a risk to everyone at the scene. They may could make poor decisions. They could fail in a good response, uh, which could have someone else injured. So uh, I don't know if you take them offline. I think you recognize it, deal with it in a professional uh, manner. Um, if you met with resistance, then you have to put those stripes on and, and make a decision. Good answer. Dwayne, let's see if you can you wrap this up in about 90 seconds. What's your what's your take on this? I strongly agree. They, they might have something personal going on. So you, you tap into where they are me mentally um, and, and you find out you, you work from there. They, they, they need to provide the why. And then when they provide the why, then you, you set up the, the, the proper resources and go through the proper channels. The one thing that is not acceptable is somebody that is slacking just to be slacking, retired on duty and have other people, you know, pick up the slack because, you know, it, it, <laughs> It, one, it's bad for morale, and two, you're going to end up burning out your real good offices when you just keep relying and relying and relying. You know? uh, so, that. so I'm going to also give my opinion on this too. So what that happens when you do that, Judo, and it's weird for me having, you know, almost talking to a guy that, like I said, I, I, I go to for advice, a guy that I, that I, that I think has helped um, mentor my career, but I disagree with you there. Because now you're getting into a situation where you are now punishing somebody else for being proficient at their job, which happens in this line of work too much. What happens to the people that, that are dependable? What do we do? We pile more work on those people and we add more to their plate and we expect them to do three times as much work as the person that's not pulling their weight. So if we start forcing people and, and I have a family and I have things that I want to do outside of work and now I can't do them because someone's not pulling their weight, I don't think that that's the right way to handle it either. And if somebody is mentally not up to the job, yes, that could be a day-to-day -day thing. But if someone's physically not up to the job, that didn't just happen overnight. I didn't go home and eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs, and now all of a sudden I can't <laughs> run anymore. You know, that's not how it works. You know, so that's something that that didn't just happen, and that needed to be documented all along. And that's something that if that's what your agency does, that's, um, that's a process that, to Steve and Dwayne's point, that a lot of bosses – and possibly even some coworkers need to be involved. And that's not like a one-time bang, that's it, you're off the shift type deal. So, gentlemen, we are down to about 90 seconds. Really quick, um, Steve, what projects do you have? How can we reach you? And then, Dwayne, in about 30 seconds, how can we reach you and support your projects like Viper? uh so yeah so uh i'm working still um even though i'm retired i'm still teaching i'm looking to help assist and fix the the problems we have out there with policing so i'm still teaching you know with the t academy uh plymouth here and there still doing my thing teaching with Dwayne. so um you can reach me through Dwayne. uh message me through facebook um i'm easily reachable or come down to coin collision in in boston and uh hopefully you're not there for a dent but if you are i'll take care of you there as well so Dwayne, that's awesome, Steve. Dwayne, what do you tell us about Viper? How do we get in touch with Viper and go, on, go from uh, there? Google it. Google Viper Self Defense, and uh, you're gonna see uh, you're gonna see some some good stuff about you know what I have to offer. And I just say this real quick. I'm gonna ask you to answer for everybody that's that's chimed in. Is gonna hear this. Where do most altercations end up? Where I know where most altercations end up. On the ground. Tell everybody. I don't want to set it up on the ground, but how much training do officers get on the ground? I'll answer that. Zero. 
So think about that. So we're talking about defunding police and it's about training. When we know that 99% of all altercations go to the ground and then in an academy setting in service, you ask a veteran also, when's the last time they did in service ground defense? I'm not trying to turn this into, you know, a jujitsu arena, but you come to Viper Cell, so you know, no strikes, period. No strikes. It's all about control with strikes available. Check it out. All right. What so, so Dwayne, I got to jump in with past time. So, again, check out Viper Self-Defense, all kinds of cutting-edge training and programs. Thank you guys so much for taking times away from your family to come out, check us out. This has been a this has been one of the best episodes we've had. Ton of people engaged, and and I'm and I'm so excited that you guys took the time out to uh to talk with us here. So thank you again. Thank you. So any please be safe. We appreciate that. So really quick, and again, this is difficult conversations by Supply of the Wise. So if you're checking us out on Amazon on Apple or on Spotify. This will be out in uh, probably a couple days after we air this. And again, if you have people that aren't on Facebook and they can't view these live, don't worry. We also have a YouTube channel. So please subscribe, like, and share these videos. We're trying to change the world one difficult conversation at a time. And we're doing it with great guests like the ones we've had tonight. So that's it. That's all I got. We'll see everybody next week for another episode of Difficult Conversations. Take care.